Welcome, welcome, my friends. Jerry Hines is my name, one of the teaching pastors here, and it is my joy to be here with you on Easter Sunday and to uh, share this message with you. Uh, I just want to give you a little bit of perspective. This morning, what we're joining in is approximately 2.5 billion people on this planet that would say that they belong to Jesus, who this very day are joined together in worship and celebrating him overcoming the grave. All right, think about that. It's not just us and our little community or lots of other little communities in Cary and Apex and Morrisville and Raleigh. It's all over the world, approximately 2.5 billion people who would say that they're naming the name of Christ gathered together to celebrate the most important holiday on the Christian's calendar. Okay, now how many people would say that, uh, you know, Christmas is kind of your favorite holiday, especially after I just framed that and said Easter is the most important day? Yeah, right. <laughs> No, that's all right, man. Be honest, that's good. We're a place of love and acceptance here. Of course, Christmas is wonderful. It's magical, and you get to give gifts to each other. Hearing the Christmas story, Christmas Eve services, that's all great. But here's the thing. Christmas doesn't mean anything without Easter, right? Otherwise, it's just another birth and another great, nice teacher who was kind and, and helped a lot of people. Without Easter Sunday, all the other events seem to lose their power. That's what we're here to celebrate here this morning. Now, if you've got younger children, you, you get to that point where you like for them to experience and understand for themselves the real meaning of some of these holidays, right? Because, you know, we've got television and school and influences that try and bring in all these other things that kind of take away, you know, the real meaning. You know what I'm saying? But if you want to raise your children up correctly, you get excited when they, uh, when they start to get it. Well, one of our um, ladies here was sharing a story uh, here on Facebook talking about her son and says, My son was so excited to tell us the Easter story at dinner. This is coming directly from Facebook, by the way. Jesus died on the cross, he said, but guess what? And you can imagine the parents at that time like, oh, he died. Okay, they're getting it. They're getting it. But guess what? He came back alive. Wow, he really is getting it. This is awesome. Parents beaming up with joy. And then he continues on. They put him in a cave for three days. Okay, yeah, you still got it. You're still tracking. Then a bunny went in. This is the best part. And then Jesus went into the bunny's heart to live. And now the bunny gives candy to all the children. I mean, theologically, it's a little tricky. But it's a pretty sweet story. So I don't know why you're here um, this morning. Maybe you're part of our Northwest Church community, and of course I'm going to be here Easter Sunday. I'm going to come back early from vacation to be here and to celebrate with this family, and that's great. We welcome you here. Maybe you're a friend or a family of some of those people that come here, and maybe you were just in town, and uh, hey, we go to church on Sunday. That's what we do. You should come with us. Okay, cool. We're glad that you're here. Maybe for some of you, you didn't really want to be here this morning, to be honest, but it's kind of like, all right, to keep the peace in the house, grandma wants us all to go to church, so let's just go. And that's kind of why you're strolling in here. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We're not here to give you a guilt trip or anything else. We're just glad that you joined us, and I'm going to ask you to have an open mind as we discuss uh, the true meaning of Easter. 
Well, I fashioned the, the uh, service this morning, the message really simply, just two main points. I want to talk about uh, the fact that the resurrection happened then and that the resurrection matters now. So that's kind of the way we fashion things. I want to start out by talking about proving to you that the resurrection happened then. And if you're here this morning and you're maybe not a Jesus follower yet, or maybe you used to go to church way back then, but it doesn't really have a lot to do with your everyday life, or you're just kind of like, I don't really even know what's up there. Or even if you think about Easter and, and uh, Easter Sunday morning and, and the crucifixion, and you kind of looked at the whole thing with an eye of skepticism, I want to tell you this morning that you're not alone. And here's what I mean by that. All of the disciples after Friday night, they essentially unfollowed Jesus. They were nowhere to be found, right? He had been there with them. He had been healing people and helping the broken, teaching these incredible things. They had all their hopes kind of pinned on him that this was going to be the Messiah. This is going to be the one to bring and restore uh, the earth and to bring peace to the earth. And then Friday night, when they finally saw this, who they thought was their Messiah, crucified and dead and in the grave Friday night, they all scattered. And nobody was a follower of Jesus, essentially, at that point. Nobody really necessarily believed in the resurrection or anticipated that coming that we can tell from Scripture. But I want to bring a couple of pieces of evidence to you, some from the narrative of Scripture, from, some from outside sources that maybe will help us. And if you're skeptical here this morning or not quite believing, maybe some of this will shed some light on you. Uh, there is some evidence that we have um, as a follower of Jesus that, again, for any of us that are believers, if we didn't have this, if we didn't truly believe, we are to be, as Scripture says, among, among everybody, most pitied. If this isn't true, if we can't prove it, we're kind of living our lives in futility. Check out this passage of scripture that even Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All this stuff that I'm doing up here, all this preaching and sharing and some of you with your faith and everything, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, all that's worth nothing, Paul says. In addition, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died, they have completely perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So even Paul recognized that, hey, we need to be sure of our faith and foundation and be sure what we believe in. Here's a couple of evidences that I just want to go over to help you understand that the resurrection happened back then. The first one I want to talk about is this idea about um, the disciples. I want you to think about them, and you know, there are some people that say, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, you know, these guys probably just made up a lot of this stuff concerning Jesus and his resurrection. I want you to think about something for a moment. If they were the writers on their own volition and were just making this stuff up, don't you think at least one of them would write themselves as the hero into the story? Because if you think about it, they were all brutally honest about how they acted and reacted. None of them put themselves in as the hero, and that's what most people do when they're writing something like this and making it up, right? Think about John. He's one of the writers of the Gospels, 
And yet he and others have the account that, you know what, in that Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was suffering, when he was at his worst, it says all of the disciples continually fell asleep, including John. Don't you think maybe if he was writing that, he'd be like, yeah, those other dudes, they were so tired, but man, I was up with Jesus. I was encouraging him. I was praying for him. I was reminding him of scripture. I had my hand on his back. They were brutally honest accounts, self-deprecating accounts. That's one evidence that like, wow, you know what? Well, maybe they did accurately take these things down. What about this? What about the fact that many of them have um, the first people as witnessing Christ and the empty tomb as being women? We've mentioned this before, but man, 2,000 years ago, and unfortunately throughout the history of the world, women have been disrespected, disregarded, and not believed in society or not valued nearly as much as men. And unfortunately, this wasn't different 2,000 years ago. So if these writers were trying to craft some believable story, why in the world would they have two women be the very first eyewitnesses to an empty tomb? At that time, women could not even stand up in a court of law. It doesn't matter if 10 women all saw the same thing happen and they were wanting to testify. The judge would be like, nope, sorry, no women allowed. doesn't matter. We don't believe you. It's a shame, but it's history. So if we were making this up, we should surely come with a more credible story than that. The dedication of the original disciples to this cause and what they saw. You would imagine if the disciples, like some have uh, hypothesized, snuck in and stole away the body of Jesus and then just made up this story that he rose again from the dead or whatever and propagated that. You would imagine those 12 disciples somewhere along the line, as the heat started to get turned up, as they started to get more and more persecuted, as 11 of the 12 actually ended up dying, being tortured and killed for their faith, That somewhere along the line, as they're getting ready to be hammered onto a cross, or as they're looking at having their head cut off, they would be like, oh, okay, time out. You know what? There's been a nice run, but the gig's up. I got something to share. Yep, that whole story, not really true. It's been kind of cool and fun, but it's not fun anymore. Let me down. But you don't see that. You see a supreme dedication and passion because they knew and they believed and they saw with their own eyes. Even in secular sources, uh, some writings back from the time of Rome in the first century where Jesus lived really lay down for us a foundation that we need to wrestle with as to whether or not Christianity was really true and all this stuff is believable. In 64 AD, many of you have heard from world history class that Rome burned, right? And the emperor Nero was uh, the one in charge, right? What have we heard about Nero? Nero fiddled while Rome burned, right? Does that ring a bell for anyone? He fiddled, literally, he was a musician. But he also just fooled around and didn't know how to lead and was an awful, awful leader of this Roman Empire and the empire fell apart under him. But the point is, in 64 AD, there was this massive fire that lasted for over a week. And it was after that that Nero began to say, the Christians were the ones that set this fire, And that's when massive persecution of Christians even increased in the city of Rome and around that whole entire Roman Empire. Now, why is that important? That's important because historians and sociologists and people that study culture tell us that in order for a myth 
or a story to turn into something epic, mythological, a legend, typically takes about 80 years. Okay, so if new things are going to be made up or new conquerings or magic works or feats of strength or whatever it is, based on somebody who actually lived, it usually takes about 80 years for those myths and those legends to really take root. Why is that? Because it needs to be several generations of people have to die off who were actually there. Because if you started those myths and legends, there would be somebody undoubtedly would be like, um, hold on. Yeah, that didn't happen. I was there. That's not the way it went. So the fact that in 64 AD, only a matter of a few decades, not 80 years later, such a short time between when Jesus lived and walked the earth and 1,500 miles away in Rome, there was such a stronghold of believers that were so dedicated and so sure of what they saw that they were willing to die for their faith. Secular sources even tell that. The resurrection happen then. But for us here this morning, what I want to focus on in our few short minutes together is the fact that the resurrection matters now. Even though it happened 2,000 years ago, there's still some amazing implications for us here this morning. And I broke it down into three quick statements that we all need to be reminded of or come to an understanding of, of why the resurrection matters. The first one is this, is that we are all broken. Every single one of us is broken. It all started in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve when they went on their own decision and because of their pride didn't listen to God and instead selfishly disobeyed. And because of that, every single person that's been born and walked in here this morning is born with a limp, a spiritual limp, and is broken and there's darkness in us. The book of Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. I really don't think there'd be anybody that would stand up in here and be like, nope, not true, perfect, right here. Or wife over there, perfect. Uh, wife, stand up, husband, perfect. Anybody like that? That was your chance. No, of course not. We've all sinned. Everybody understands that, right? There's a brokenness to humanity, and we saw it firsthand even yesterday. Right, I was there on that field, and I'm trying to hold back, you know, a thousand plus kids for this crazy Easter egg hunt that we had. And when we did that countdown and when we dropped that fence and it was just the floodgates were opened, I saw kicking and biting and stealing eggs and punching. And that was just the parents. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? There was actually a fair amount of truth to that. No, I am just kidding. But we understand that. We know that even from a young age, people are bent towards selfishness and towards sin. We are all broken. God has always created a way to get us back in fellowship with him. For thousands of years in the Old Testament, it was a system called the law, the Ten Commandments. We've heard of them. Lots of other commandments, lots of other regulations. And it was, hey, I know that you're going to do things wrong, but I want to create a way back into fellowship with me as your God because I love you and I created you. So when you break these moral laws, there's a system of sacrifices that you need to make that will appease and be worthy of my holiness, and we will be back in fellowship. And it seems like a very cruel situation way back then, 
where a lamb had to be sacrificed or a bull or all these other different animals as part of the system. And man, sometimes we think, well, when Jesus came, he did away with all that. And we don't have to worry about that because Jesus was nothing but love and affection and goodness. And there's a piece of truth to that. He did do away with that system. But he also ratcheted up the regulations and the standards. Right? You remember the Ten Commandments, and you look in those and be like, all right, well, I can really, maybe on some really good days, try and kind of obey all of those. But Jesus said, oh, you know what? Okay, you've never murdered. Well, that's good. But guess what? If you have an angry thought towards somebody in your heart, that's the same thing as murdering them in your heart. Okay, so you've never cheated on your spouse? Well, that's commendable. But if you've ever looked lustfully upon somebody in your heart, then that's the same thing in my eyes as adultery. So now instead of just these 10 regulations, we've got 10,000 regulations that nobody in their right mind could ever even come close to living life without doing these things constantly. And because we are all broken, because we've got these sin issues stacked up in every single one of our lives, something had to be done. The second beautiful point, not only are we all broken, but we are all loved. We are all loved. John 3.16, you've heard this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but will now have everlasting life. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, He, that is Jesus, became flesh and he dwelled among us. The God who created everything stepped down into human flesh, stepped down to our level on the earth and lived among us to show us a better way to live. In Romans chapter 5, Verse 8 really brings it together for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? Not when you're in your Sunday best, not when you're in your Easter best, not on your wedding day or in your Photoshopped senior picture where there's no blemishes and you're really looking your absolute best. God's saying, no, 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 I see you down here when you're at your worst. And when all these different things that you've committed are right there in front of you, weighing you down. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he did it to demonstrate his love. The last thing that we want to mention here that we are all invited. We are all invited. And Jesus what he would want for us to understand here this morning is that there's an invitation going out to all of humanity. And it's not just, hey, I want to invite you into freedom and forgiveness. The invitation is, I want to invite you into my death. And that's a big part of it. Think about this passage from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, And you, that's all of us, who were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's this giant stack of things that we've all done. It says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
Remember, in the eyes of God, who is definitely a God of justice, we've got all of these things that we've done. The most moral, amazing, kind person that you can imagine, they still have all these things that are separating them from God. And because God is a God of justice, those must be paid for. All have sinned. Something's got to happen with our dirty laundry. But God is a God of justice, and God is also a God of love. And those two things mingle so beautifully in this cross. Because in love, Jesus came down, took upon all the weight of the sin of humanity, that record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. And verse 14 says this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And with that, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the great news here this morning, the reason that Easter Sunday matters is some of these right here are things that have been true in my life. Some of these things have been true in your life. Remember Jesus' standard? I know you're all looking at that one right there. You're like, uh, I really hope not. It says murder, in case you can't read it. But all these other things, even in our thought life, all these things have been true and they're weighed against us and every single person in this room today will one day stand before God and he's gonna say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? We are all invited into this brand new life in Jesus and the unbelievable nature of Easter Sunday is this exchange takes place. All of our sin, all of our sorrow, all of our shame is taken upon the cross. And all the goodness and power and righteousness of Jesus is then given to us. If we take that step of faith and if we believe in this man named Jesus who did this for all of us, that will be true for us here this morning. I want to just read to you one final passage here from the book of John, chapter 20, to bring this all into perspective for us. In John, chapter 20, we get the unique, amazing account of Jesus appearing to somebody who loved him very dearly. Her name was Mary Magdalene. Somebody who had been healed by him, somebody who had followed him around, somebody who had seen his miracles, and somebody who was disillusioned and so sorrowful because of his death on Friday. Listen to what it says. But Mary then, early in the morning, stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And there's kind of an age-old debate here, as one writer put it, that, you know, do we know if angels are men or women? Well, this next verse tells us, and the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Very clearly, the angels are men. <laughs> Only men at this moment would not be able to put everything together. Oh, what's wrong? What could possibly be wrong? A little resurrection humor in there for you. Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. Once again, even these people that are so close, they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, somebody must have taken him away and we don't know where he is. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know 
that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will go take him away. Can you imagine Mary in this moment? For all the years going on, every time they sit at dinner, every time they have guests over, if she wouldn't have been telling this story over and over and over again, Right? People are like, Mary, tell us that story one more time. All right, that's so crazy. I was crying, and I met the angels, and I just couldn't believe it. And then this voice said to me, you know, what are you doing? And I just said, hey, where have you put them? And it was just so crazy, I didn't know. And then he said her name, Mary. And that changed everything. And I wonder even here this morning, if for some of us, We're in somewhat of a similar situation where Jesus is present, Jesus is there, but we just don't recognize him. We're just not looking for him. Maybe she was distraught. Maybe it was still dark out. We don't really know. Maybe her eyes were blinded in some way, but that moment when Jesus spoke her name, she knew. And now all of a sudden it all became clear. All these sins that she had been healed of, all the weight of the sin of the world. Now, what they saw on Friday night as they were weeping, they saw him up here and they heard Jesus cry out in his final breath. One of the last things that he said is, it is finished to tell us die. That legal code, all of the accusations, all of the truth. Jesus is saying, it is finished. They are paid for completely and done. And that's why we're victorious here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus. I want us just to focus and concentrate for a moment on on what these guys are going to sing because they're going to bring a song to us that, that really brings a lot of this into perspective. And just take this in as we sing about the victory.
dark world as a light. John talks about that light with life among men. And maybe for some of you here this morning, you're living in darkness. You haven't experienced that light. But for many, as we think about all the regulations that are nailed to this tree, we realize that this should be my tree. And it should be my pain and suffering for what I've done. But praise be to God sending his son Jesus and Jesus who willingly went to be a suffering servant for us. And I love when John the Baptist was there, the forerunner of this Messiah as everything was getting into place and the time had been accomplished. And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down and everybody had been gathering around and saying, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? What's going on? And Jesus was there and John pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Again, for so many in the sacrificial system of blood and sacrifice and lambs, now all of a sudden this was all going to change. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world now and forever. Let's sing that out. Let's sing these words on the screen. Colossians 2.14, it is finished. Everything that we've done, all the accusations are no longer there. The Lamb of God, as far as the east is from the west, he remembers them no more. He has taken away the sin of the world. Let's stand together and sing out in victory, church. Let's stand up. Sing to our great God in victory. The cross is empty. Let's sing this out if you believe it this morning. Close our eyes just for a moment here.
And I'd like to just ask you a couple of questions here. There's a lot of people here this morning from a lot of different walks of life, and a lot of different situations. But as a pastor and somebody that cares about you, I honestly and sincerely want to pray for you in just a moment here. But I'm wondering if there's some here, even this morning, that as you see the illustration, think about that idea of your sins being on the cross. You believe it and you've accepted it, but for some reason in your life, you still need a resurrection of sorts. You're a believer. You're a son or a daughter of God. You've made that step from unbelief to belief, but you still need that resurrection power in your life. And maybe as you look at all those words that were on here, maybe there's some for you that it's like, no, you know what? I'm still kind of bearing them. I'm still kind of holding on to them. I'm still kind of struggling with them. And this morning, I need a comeback story in my life. And I need that resurrection power in my life to overcome some of these sins that are tangling me up. And I need a comeback story this morning. I'm a believer, but man, I need you to pray for me. Pastor, would you do that? Just everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are shut, and I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird, I promise. But if that's your situation, could you just raise your hand up in the air? Because I just want to pray for you here in a moment. Awesome. Just keep them up high. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. All ages, this morning, being moved by the story of the resurrection of Christ. I want to pray for you in a moment for power in your life. And then maybe for some here this morning, this is kind of the first time or maybe you've thought about it in a different way or man maybe you've been kind of close to Jesus like Mary was but just eyes were blinded not really understanding not really recognizing and you haven't quite taken that step of belief that says I believe in you Jesus I believe in your son I believe what you did I confess my sins to you and I want to become a Christian maybe that's your situation here this morning you want that forgiveness of sins. You want that power in your life. You want that meaning and that purpose and that goodness that comes from being a son or daughter of God. And if you've never taken that step of faith before, it's very simple. It's not easy. Jesus never promised that. But it is simple. All you have to do is, in your heart and in your mind, repeat these words and mean them from the core of your being. It's a very simple prayer. It says, Dear God, I believe that I'm a sinner. I trust in your son Jesus and him alone for the payment of that sin. I place my faith in him. I place my trust in him. And I place my life in his hands. Scripture says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And hearing about the cross and hearing about this power, I'm curious, everybody's head's bowed, everybody's eyes are closed. Anybody say that prayer here this morning in your heart and you meant it and you became a believer this morning and you want to follow after Jesus, raise your hand up really high. Awesome. Thank you. All over. Good. 
Lord, I thank you for this body of people. These people, many of them don't know each other. Some from out of town, some in church for the first time, some been coming a long time. But Lord, I thank you for this time that we could share. Lord, for those that know you, give them that resurrection power, God. You promised the same power that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in us. So, Lord, help them to get rid of that sin that's so easily entangled. Remind them, God, that these sins have been taken care of. You have forgotten about them. They are remembered no more. And let us live in that victory and in that freedom, God. I thank you for their honesty in sharing this morning. And, Lord, for those that said they believe, they've stepped over from unbelief to belief, they want to be a Christian, they want to follow you, they want to be one of the ones that are your sons and daughters and have forgiveness of sin, new life. Lord, I pray that you would help them on their journey. And Lord, let them know that we are here for them. And, um, and Father, you are so pleased when children turn to you and confess and begin new life. So we thank you for the victory we have, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.